Welcome to StoryWise. This is the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination. And I am absolutely thrilled to have with me as my guest today the illustrious Jeff Melvoin. Let me tell you a little bit about Jeff. Jeff is currently on uh, Army Wives. He is the executive producer showrunner. He is an Emmy Award winner and has worked on a dozen one-hour television series. Currently, um, he is executive producer on Lifetime series Army Wives. Prior uh, writer-producer credits include Alias, Picket Fences, Northern Exposure, Hill Street Blues, and Remington Steel. Awards include an Emmy, two Golden Globes, a Television Critics Association Award, a People's Choice Award, and a Mystery Writers of America Award. A graduate of Harvard University, Jeff worked as a Time Magazine correspondent before entering the television industry. A past board member of the Writers Guild of America, in 2004, Jeff co-authored a WGA booklet, Writing for Episodic TV. In 2005, he proposed the creation of the WGA Showrunner Training Program and has moderated the program since its inception in 2006. He has taught screenwriting at the USC School of Cinema, Arts, and UCLA Extension and was a visiting lecturer in dramatic arts at Harvard in 2008. He and his wife, Martha, Hartnett Melvoin live in Los Angeles and have two sons, Nick and Charlie. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, certainly my pleasure. It's great to have you here. So, wow. I mean, how does one deal with, I mean, when you look at all that you've done, and, and it is a wild thing, I know you just keep moving forward, so very, very rare unless you're in a situation like this. Do you get to hear it all brought to the surface again, I mean, brought forward again. What is that like? Like when you think about all that you've worked on over the last 20 years, what what has that experience been like? Well, I feel very, very fortunate. Um, it's also felt very normal. The one, one of the great blessings about television is that uh, uh, I used to say it was like Woody Allen's line, 90% of life is just showing up. And in television, when I started, I think that if you could do the job reliably, consistently, and perhaps do a little more than what people expected, uh, you could stay employed. I think today it's a different uh, it's a different business. There's much more competition. Uh, there are more slices of the pie, but they seem to hang around a shorter period of time. But, um, but I was fortunate to get in at a point where uh, it was possible to really learn at the knee of some very good people. And uh, it's kind of like Satchel Paige, you know, don't look back. You know, mm-hmm. Something might be gaining on you. And uh, Having I, I met my wife the weekend before I went to work for Remington Steel, my first show. And so we had our first uh, son uh, about 14, 15 months later. And so it keeps you motivated. <laughs> yes, I'll say. Wow, look at that timing. So everything happened. I, I love that you guys built all this together then. that's She's been there from the beginning. I think that's great. Aaron Spelling with Candy, it was the same type of thing they had met when he was like, I owned a house that was $75,000 up on Mulholland or Coldwater or something. And I was like, really? (laughs) (laughs) My how things changed. (laughs) I didn't own anything. I know. Isn't that wild? (laughs) Now, um, I'm curious, like when you were going to school at Harvard, did you have any idea then that this is where you'd be now? Like, was television something that you were passionate about then, or was it something you fell into after being a time correspondent? It, it was more something I fell into. My uh, my path really began, I, I always loved television and movies, and uh, one of my earliest memories was earning my uh, father's scowl for asking to leave the dinner table Tuesday nights at 7 so I could watch Sea Hunt. That was one of my 
<laughs> earliest loves. Um, right. And uh, Lloyd Bridges. Uh, oh, I love that. And, uh, but I would go to the movies and I would come home and I would, you know, my folks would ask me how was the movie and I would, I would tell them blow by blow everything that happened in the movie. Uh, and then I'd stop myself and say, oh, I forgot to tell you this part and go back and retrace things. So it's always been a big, a big deal. And I was a big reader as well. But my high school drama teacher, I went to Highland Park High School in Illinois, and my high school drama teacher, uh, Barbara Greener Patterson, um, really was the big influence in terms of altering where I was going. I was, uh, uh, I'd been uh, a debater. I was doing forensics. and, uh, and then Forensics uh, in high school? Uh, national, uh, forensics was the name they give to, to debate and speeches wow, and things okay. like that, oh, the National great. Forensics League. And uh, anyway, she, she really turned things around. She had a great program, and Gary Sinise and Jeff Perry and I all acted together in high school. And uh, as I like to tell people, I was in the first play that Gary Sinise ever was in, the first part he ever played in anything. And it was uh, my senior year we were doing West Side Story. And believe it or not, I played Bernardo and uh, dyed my hair. Bernardo has the distinction of being the only musical character in that play, that uh, that musical that doesn't really sing, right. um, which was appropriate. But uh, anyway, so we – all three of us got terrific instruction from this woman. And when I went to college, I, I had the choice, fortunately, between Harvard and Yale. And I knew I wanted to be involved in the arts at that time. And um, – and I really I, I enjoyed Yale, but the fact that it had a, uh, a drama school, a, a graduate drama school, was not an attractive thing to me because um, I had enough hubris uh, and enough training, I think, from from Barbara Patterson that I felt uh, what I wanted to do was have a big sandbox to play in, and I didn't want to major in theater. I wanted to do something else and and do the theater on the side. And Ed Zwick was a couple years ahead of me, and he had the same notion, and, and we're good friends, and uh, wow, uh, had had very similar nice. kind of outlook on what, what Harvard yeah. would be. So I did a lot of, I started out acting in, in, in college, and then uh, quickly moved to directing and playwriting. Robert Anderson, the playwright who wrote Tea and Sympathy, and I Never Sang for My Father, among other things, was, uh, was an instructor my senior year, and he came, uh, he was a guest instructor. And so I, I was exposed to a lot of things, but my uh, my major was American history and literature, and I wrote a thesis on the development of the American detective in fiction, which wow. kind of played a role in my career a little, a little bit down the line. But, but I had no clue what I was going to do when I was going when I graduated. Um, they asked uh, you to write down for your graduation ceremony what your career plans were, and I just used the last line from Tennyson's poem Ulysses to strive to seek to find and not to yield. And I look at that today, and I just say, "Well, what was I thinking?" But um, isn't that uh, interesting, though? Um, it, it like you, it brings you into a moment of, of where you were at and, at that time. Yeah, very, uh, very romantic. Uh, yeah. But, but also, uh, it, it certainly wasn't like, "Well, I'm going to law school." Uh, mm -hmm. But I subsequently, um, long story short, I ended up back in Chicago for a little time, and and I got uh, while I was trying to figure out what to do next, I, uh, I, I got some graduate credit hours in business because a friend of our family's ran a, a business program. And that, that fellow today now runs DeVry Institute, so he's done pretty well for himself. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, uh, and that was good exposure for me because having spent my time in loftier pursuits in college to actually be uh, confronted with double-entry bookkeeping and things like that was, was, was very instructional. And Subsequently, when I was ready to leave Chicago and, what, and asked myself what I was going to do for gainful employment, I thought, well, I want to travel and I want to write and I don't feel ready to go out to Los Angeles. So it seemed like journalism was a pretty good ticket. Put together a resume with some of the skills that I'd learned uh, in this business program. I ended up at Fairchild Publications, which is a business group. Uh, uncle of mine was in the furniture business and every industry has its own organ of some sort, news organ, you know, and uh, and so his was Home Furnishings Daily, which was part of the Fairchild Publishing Group. And they had a news service and I was, uh, and I used for my submission my thesis on detective fiction and happened to hit a note with the person who was reading it. And so they hired me and I went to uh, Washington as a, a cub reporter for their news service. And then they called me into the New York. Um, their offices are in Greenwich Village. It was a very funky organization. And they called me there after three months and said, we'd like to make you bureau chief in Miami. And uh, it was a one-person bureau. But uh, That's amazing. Uh, yeah, and I learned a lesson there because I said, do you think I'm qualified? And the guy looked at me and got very mad and said, do you think we'd offer you the job if uh, – uh, if we didn't think you were qualified, so I learned never, you know, never look back, never, never complain, never ne question, never when question. Someone wants to promote you, <laughs> absolutely, just say yes, sir. So I went to Miami, and and it was uh, a terrific experience, and you know, it was it was it was terrific being a, 
a relatively big fish in a small pond as far as the organization was concerned. Uh, I got a lot of experience, and then I thought, okay, it's time for me now to get serious about show business, so I applied to Yale Drama School, and when I went there for my application, um, it did not go very well. I didn't really I didn't want to go back to school. As it turned out, they didn't want me to go back to school, <laughs> but uh, I did, was not accepted, which I found out later. But um, but as a, as a result of that trip, um, which is another long story, I met somebody from, from Time, Inc., and uh, they invited me to New York um, to uh, fill in uh, at People Magazine uh, during the summer month, during August. And so I did that, and um, I got a job offer from Time to join their uh, New York bureau as a correspondent. So really, the, the and, it, and what I said to myself at the time, I was 25, and I said, well, this is not what I want to do with the rest of my life, but I'm 25. I can do this for five years, quit when I'm 30, and have my creative life ahead of me. And I was learning a lot and um, getting my feet on the ground. And that's essentially what I did. I had a wonderful stretch in New York. Um, I was then transferred to Boston, which was another wonderful stretch. And then I was going to quit again and go to Los Angeles. And my brother said, but you've never been to Los Angeles. What if you don't like it? So I actually requested a transfer, which took a little while to come through, but time transferred me. I had uh, a very good experience here, and I was coming up on my 30th birthday, and I resigned. And um, uh, and then I called a friend of mine, uh, John Scheinfeld, who was working at uh, MTM at the time. And I said, now what do I do? And he said... uh, what do you want to do? I said, I want to write scripts. And he said, well, for movies or for TV? I said, what's the difference? He said, the difference is nobody tells Paramount how many movies they have to make every year, but TV needs three hours every night. And I said, well, that sounds like a better bet. So I took all the money I had, and I bought the first IBM computer, and I bought a brother Daisy Wheel printer. Those two things cost me $5,200 back then. That's a while That's ago. That's a lot of money. And, back and, yeah, and... Yeah. and um, and I got a cat, and uh, so I moved that stuff into my apartment, and um, I wrote a spec Remington, which eventually brought me to their attention. And actually, the first thing I sold in show business was a scene from that spec Remington. Oh they my just gosh, they grafted amazing. it right onto a show that they had, and they made an offer that they would give me an episode if if it, the show came back, which it did, and uh, that led to a staff position. And um, the weekend, as I, the weekend before, I went to work for them. I uh, I met Martha on a blind date at a party that friends of ours were giving. So it it, it all kind of everything happened at once. So far, so good. You like know, the gift. No, that's that's fantastic. I was going to ask you, how did you get your first job? That's great. So it's interesting that you left time with no security blanket, and then we're just like, were, had you written scripts when you were at time? Not not really. I mean, okay. my yeah, my mother was very concerned about that too. She yeah, said, well, but what? I but I love that because I think when you don't have a net, it fuels you even more. Well, I have I have a good friend. Um, who uh, Gene Wolfe, who uh, was in the business as an um, entertainment reporter and a personality herself, who I met originally in Florida. And I would, during that period of time, I was talking to her about what I was going to do, and I kept thinking I was going to quit journalism. And then finally one day I called her, and I told her that I had quit. And she said, well, I knew you would not do it until you called to tell me. Every time you called me before that to talk about it, you weren't ready. And when you're ready, you're ready. And I think that as far as um, a writing career is concerned, uh, you, you have to approach it in, intelligently if you can, but at some point you have to hook up and bail out. I mean, you have to commit. You know, you yeah. have to. Uh, 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 the nice thing about writing is that, unlike other crafts, you can be practicing it without doing it full time or being paid to do it. But it, but at some point, uh, especially in television, uh, I think uh, you've got to make a. You've got to say, now's the time. I'm I'm going to give myself to this and and really make a go of it. But I, I have to admit, like, I think it's good for the listeners to hear that it, at 30 is when you really started going after it because, you know, there are a lot of people that are like, do you have to be 22? Like, do you? And and it, it frustrates me, I have to admit, as a creative executive because I much prefer that a writer go out and live life and then come to the page. So for me, I personally, you know, 30 on up is where I think you really start to have something to say. Well, I always carried around something that Robert Anderson told me, which is uh, he had an expression that a young poet is 16, a young novelist is 26, and a young playwright or screenwriter is 36. And uh, there's a reason for that, which has to do with the form. Poetry is a shorter form, and it tends to be an immediate expression between the poet and the reader, and it exists in the reader's 
mind and uh, structure isn't that important. Um, the immediacy of life and what you're feeling is very important, which is something that younger people can be very much in touch with, which is why Emily Dickinson and Dylan Thomas and others could be so successful um, at such a young age at, at being so um, brilliant and, and affecting. Uh, a novel uh, does put emphasis to some degree on structure, but you can flip back and forth in a novel. You can look at the glossary. You can, you know, whatever it is you need to do. If it's a Russian novel, you can look at the glossary and remember who's what. But, um, but again, it, it, uh, uh, structure is not that important. Um, it, uh, it, it, the narrative voice is important and, and, and so forth. And, uh, which, and then when you get to scripts, Structure, as William Goldman has said, you know, William Goldman's two rules, nobody knows anything and structure is everything. Well, you know, a script really is a piece of carpentry and uh, just like a uh, any good craft, uh, if you can't put four tables on a level plane, then your table's no good. I don't care how beautiful the wood may be or how good the inlay is. And so – I couldn't it, agree with you more. <laughs> so the structure, you know, the, yeah. and structure is one of those things that uh, – it takes it takes time. It takes commitment, and and it takes a certain amount of dispassion and an ability to uh, to learn from your mistakes. And principally, you have to learn by looking at it yourself and realizing that it's not as good as it can be. Um, and the cruel thing about writing is that the learning curve is very tough at the beginning. And mm-hmm. I, I, you know, my experience in television, the the, the writer you want to hire on staff and keep close is the person whose second draft is better than the first, and who is you know dying to know uh, what. Uh, you know, what to do to make it better. Yeah. The person who turns it in and says, I'm done. That's it. Oh, you really want me to make that change? Um, that's not the person who's going to go very far in this business. Oh, no. I think that's a great piece of advice. I love that. But but I also agree with what you said about about uh, living. I mean, you, everybody's path is different. Some mm-hmm. people can come out here and at a very young age can be terrific. Um, mm-hmm. Bochco's a guy who comes to mind um, who I think came out here very uh, shortly after college. And um, obviously, it didn't hurt his career too much. For me, it would have been a mistake. And um, you know, one of my pieces of advice to young writers: just under, you know, try to understand who you are and have compassion for who you are. Yeah. And you don't have to be famous by Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen people burn themselves out because they throw themselves into the into the business too early, too too wholeheartedly, too young, and they can't be expected to succeed. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's worth pointing out that half hour comedy in television and one hour is, is there's some differences there, and 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 youth has a certain virtue, especially in comedy, if for no other reason the physical stamina it takes to. Uh, to go through what the way that half hour is written, but yeah. but that's still. I mean, there's plenty of that's older people working point. in comedy. Yeah, and, there are. Uh, and no, uh, but that's a good point. Like when you looked at the different styles, I like when you talked about the novel and the poet because I remember, you know, we all wrote poetry back in, you know, because it was like part of learning, and it was something that I. Oh my God, I loved writing poems. I haven't written a poem since then. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it is a fascinating thing. Um, now. Army Wives. Yes. So, so tell us about Army Wives. You, you have done such a spectacular job with this show, and the voice that comes out is so beautiful in the characters, and it's such a tremendous show. And I know it's the most successful show for Lifetime in twenty six years. I guess yeah, however long the uh, network's oh, been around. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic! And you've been on the show now. You were on the show, left the show to teach at Harvard, and then came back. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, my history with the show is a little unusual. Uh, I can't take any credit for creating the show. The Mark Gordon Company I, I found the original property written by Tanya Bianc. There's a book um, yeah, by Tanya Bianc, who was an Army brat herself, who wrote about a series of murders at Fort Bragg um, that she broke for the uh, for the local newspaper there. And um, and then Catherine Fouget was uh, found by the Mark Gordon Company to write the pilot. Uh, I, as I understand it, it was originally pitched to ABC based pretty much on the outline of the book. So it was dark and it had this, these murders as part of the original concept. Um, when ABC passed on it, the decision was to redo it for Lifetime, who liked all aspects of it except for the murder part. And, and in truth, Tanya's book, the, the greater part of it, um, it devotes itself to say, her, her point of view is you really can't understand these murders unless you understand what it's like to be a military family. And she spends a lot of time talking about what it's like to be a military family. And and so it was valid uh, for Catherine to take that aspect of the uh, of the book and turn that into the series. And she did a brilliant job um, making composites out of certain characters and creating some new characters that would serve what she was doing. W- my involvement was uh, I wasn't I was between things at the time. 
And my agent called me and said, well, there's a new project that's in trouble at Lifetime. And I said, well, I'm not interested in a Lifetime project. And he said, it's called Army Wives. I said, I'm really not interested in something called Army Wives. And he said, well, you've just done some work for ABC. The, the studio would like you to look at it. So I looked at it, and I was blown away. I thought, this is a beautiful piece of work. Um, yeah. I've never seen characters like this mm -hmm. before. Um, they're really alive. They're real. And I was at a point in my career, fortunately, where I, I, it, it was about the work. You know, It was about, okay, where can I, where can I make a contribution, and what do I think is going to be worth my time? And I hadn't felt an affinity for characters like this since Northern Exposure in the sense that these are real people, they're dimensional, and I think you could really stretch some interesting muscles with these people, and you don't know where it's going. Um, that was one of the great things about working on Northern Exposure is uh, you never knew where a story was going to go, and uh, it was really based on, it was like skating across ice that's cracking behind you. I mean, you'd start a story, and you'd just say, okay, I don't know where this is going, but I better keep moving. I'm going to fall in. And um, with Army Wives, too, it was you just did not know exactly how each storyline was going to uh, turn up. So what had happened was uh, they'd had an unfortunate experience with the first showrunner, um, and uh, they had wanted to release her after one episode passed the pilot. Uh, they had a skeletal, Interesting. yeah, they had a skeletal writing staff, and um, and you know when I sized up the situation, I'd been in situations like this before where you're kind of called in as a doctor on on something, and I thought, well, I think I can help this show. I met Catherine and uh, pretty much told her that, um, you know, that what I wanted to do was just realize the vision that she had, but clearly she had been exhausted. She had been trying to write every script, and, and, and it, it had broken down at episode three, and so there was the basis for a third episode, but nothing else, and they wanted to be back in production in 10 days. They were out of production. You know, that's a huge pressure because that's costing $100,000 or more a day while you're idle. You've got your cast and your crew sitting in Charleston where we shoot this thing. So... Um, I took the skeletal staff that was there. There was no money to hire new people. Uh, and we would break the stories. I would uh, hand the outlines to Ka uh, uh, let Catherine see the outlines. We'd get some drafts written by the staff. Um, Catherine did uh, the lion's share of rewriting. I wrote a couple. Uh, and we got, we got not only did we get by, but when the show came on the air, uh, it, it, as you said, it, it just broke out of the box. It's the biggest scripted show in Lifetime's history. Yeah. And, you know, full credit to the cast and the crew as well. I mean, it's a wonderful cast. And, um, and, and the production credit, the production value we get um, from, from uh, our crew in South Carolina, it's incredible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a seven-day shoot. Oh, it shoots in South Carolina? Yeah, yeah, yeah and, wow. and it's a seven-day shoot, and we get such value out of it. Friends of mine who, who know production look at it, and they can't believe the budget and the schedule that we shoot on. But as the season went on, um, I, you know, Catherine was feeling her oats a little bit more. She had some ideas about where she wanted to take the show, and it was purely, it really was one of those cases of creative differences. And I did not want to get into any kind of acrimonious struggle about it. I had come in to help her with her show, and when it was clear that um, that there were some creative decisions being made that I that I just could not quite support, I thought, you know, the only thing to do is kind of withdraw with grace from the field, which is what I did. I, I've never quite encountered, heard of an experience quite like this, but I, I left on good terms with Catherine, with the studio, with the network. Um, and uh, that is different. Yeah. Yeah. And I just said, good luck. But I think that I've taken it as far as I could. And frankly, also, <laughs> because because I'd been thrown into it and under such pressure. Um, I really didn't. I thought we'd picked all the low hanging fruit as far as the stories were concerned. I didn't know where uh, they were going to find a second season of stories because it was the pressure we were under to turn out those first 12 uh, after the pilot was intense. And I was just drained. I was really tired. And. So I went off and was working on a pilot and then got the opportunity to teach at Harvard, which I did. Uh, I finished that up. I thought it was time to earn a living again. I love <laughs> teaching, but it's not quite like yeah, working not for quite Hollywood. The <laughs> right. And uh, uh, so I came back, and, and coincidentally, um, I mean, the show had done very well in the second year, and uh, I had nothing to do with it. Um, and so I, I it, and I'm not being coy. I don't know exactly what went on behind the scenes, but all I know is I got a call that they had uh, essentially fired everybody but one writer behind the scenes, including Catherine wasn't there anymore. Uh, they'd gone through a few different showrunners, and um, and so the opportunity existed for me to come back. The one writer that remained was somebody that I had hired as a uh, freelancer. My, my oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, really terrific yeah. writer, Bruce Zimmerman. Uh, and um, so I thought, well. Here's an opportunity to actually hire a staff for the show, mm -hmm. have a little more of a running start than I did um, 
the first That's time around. That's a very unique opportunity. Yeah, That's it was. Great. And so put together a terrific staff, and we had a wonderful season, uh, kept everybody for season four, um, had another terrific season, and uh, uh, this year uh, Bruce went on to work on Chaos, this new show with yeah. Tom Spezzi Alley, and so that created one opening, and I, as, as you know, I, I brought in a team of writers that Yay. you are a champion of, and they are terrific, and so Yay. they fit right in. Uh, and TJ Brady and Rashid Newsom, and you also have uh, one of my, Rebecca over R- there. Rebecca Dameron, yeah, yes, okay, I mean, I got to remember that, now I got to mention the whole staff. I got yeah. Deb Fordham, who worked yes. on Scrubs for eight years oh, yeah, before. yeah, she's great. Yeah, so she came over, and this is her first one-hour show, and she's got a big career ahead of her. Uh, Karen Mazur, who worked on on ER, right? Jim Stanley and his wife like Diane, him. who yeah. uh, I oh, worked, I love them. Yeah, yeah I, I work I with, them with them on early Savannah. Okay, yeah. And so uh, um, they've been terrific. And uh, T. D. Mitchell, a playwright who uh, quite an accomplished pay- playwright, and this is her first experience in TV, and I had to convince her to do it. But she uh, oh, that sounds right. like a stellar staff. Right. Good yeah. for you. Now I've got a script coordinator, Bill Renier, who's doing his second script for us this year oh, too. Oh, good. See, Jeff is known as the mentor. Well, I love that. I love that. Um, so we're going to take our first break. When we come back, I definitely want to talk to you. Go into the showrunner. I want to finish Army Wives. And then go into the showrunner's program, your mentoring, because that's such a huge part of who who you are and what makes so many people love you because you are so good to so many. So um, we are taking a break. We are here with Jeff Melvoin of Army Wives. You're listening to StoryWise with entertainment consultant Jen Grisanti. StoryWise is a podcast designed to give you the story behind the people who tell stories, offering you insight on what it takes to work as a writer in television and film. Hear this and other podcasts on www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, a full-service writer consultancy committed to guiding your vision. We are back with Jeff Malvoin of Army Wives. So um, a question before we go into your show running career um with regards to staffing and stuff so when you were looking for these writers what did you look for in the scripts you read and what types of scripts were you reading it's an excellent question and one that is the answer for me has changed radically from when i started um just a little history lesson uh, 25 years ago three networks um a lot of similar genre work on tv and of course the first thing i wanted to write when i uh, wanted to throw my hat into the ring was an original pilot. And people laughed and said, well, you obviously haven't been out here very long because that's the last thing people want to see. Essentially, you know, before, (laughs) you know, you have to sound like everybody else before you can sound like nobody else. And they really Mm -hmm. don't want you to sound like nobody else. I mean, it was, uh, they really wanted to, is Michael Gleason, my mentor, Mm -hmm. um, who who created and ran Remington Steel, used to say, they want it different, but not too different. They want it fresh, but not too fresh. Uh, (laughs) That was the way they were looking at show creation. But the way that the business ran... um, uh, it, it's changed 180 degrees. It used to be that the only people that were allowed to pitch new shows were people who had been in the business six, seven, eight, ten years mm-hmm. uh, because the assumption was if you were pitching it, they wanted to know the networks and studios that you could actually run it. And the only way they could know about that is if you had apprenticed for a long enough time that, that you got in the business practices ingrained. Uh, also, I feel that the, it served another purpose. By the time you got a chance to pitch, pitch, they had leached most of the creativity out of you. So you would be <laughs> pitching that thing that says, okay, well, our detective has a dog, you know. <laughs> and our detective lives on a houseboat. Our detective is a husband and wife. Our husband, you know, or, you know, grandfather and nephew. You know, I mean, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, it was uh, – there was some terrific television, but it was more of a uh, product of 1950s America corporate – structure and thinking. And a lot of the practices in television, uh, even to this day, owe a lot of their architecture to radio. I mean, it's, it, there's some, some very, you know, if, if it works from corporate America's perspective, why change it? And, and it worked for a long time. So consequently, what would you write as a staff what, if you wanted to be on staff? Well, you would pick one of the detective shows that out there or one of the westerns that was out there or one of the doctor shows that was out there and, you know, lawyer shows. And one would serve for a whole genre. And even the genres, one genre or another, weren't so radically different that you couldn't use a heart-to-heart or a Remington Steel for something else. You know, Remington Steel would show a little more sense of humor. But um, – but, but, it was so that's what you did. You wrote a spec script of an existing show. 
And then the argument was always, well, do you write for the show you want to actually staff on or not? And I always thought, I was in the minority, but I always said, of course you do, because that's the one you're going to love the best and write the most and rewrite the most. But we won't go into that argument now because <laughs> things have changed. Have. Because what, what what happened then is, is for uh, any number of reasons, and I like to think about these things, and I won't go into all the detail here, but things have changed to the point where, um, exper- you know, they got to the point where in order to compete with cable, and compete and by cable, I mean cable movies originally. In other words, there was content available to the public that was racier, more daring, more original than primetime television programming was. And uh, Bochco was one of the first people to seize upon this when he did NYPD Blue, and that's why he pushed for nudity and language and things like that. Um, but uh, – but what happened was executives were looking for fresher talent. They really were beginning to look for more original ideas. And uh, to me, it wasn't that the people that were working in television weren't capable of doing it. But it certainly seemed more attractive now to start going to movie festivals and finding people who were young and never done television or established writers, screenwriters who'd never done television. And it got to the point where it almost seemed like TV experience was a disadvantage in terms of pitching something mm-hmm. because it wasn't fresh and exciting, which is about as silly as just going to exclusively television writers. And... Um, but that's the way the business has has changed, and um, uh, and with the influx of all these new stations and uh, channels and and uh, uh, and genres, um, there is no common denominator anymore. Um, it's it's very hard to think of one show. I'd ask you, you know, I mean, what show would you, you know, if you had to pick one show and say, well, everybody will know this show. I don't think you can do that anymore. Uh, no, it used to be Sex and the City and The Sopranos. And, right. and everybody saw every single episode. So you couldn't, you know, if if they mimicked, if they did a storyline that you wrote, you had to rewrite it. Today, there are so many shows. I mean, I would say the writers I've worked with that have done the best with the spec script have written Mad Men uh, Breaking Bad and Dexter mm-hmm. seem to transfer really well to most shows. I mean, those are very edgy and give yeah. a chance to show a voice. Yeah. But but what's happened is now, you know, looking back on when I started, my original instinct to write a pilot is now, I think, mm-hmm. one of the most acceptable and perhaps preferable it choices. It is. And, and pilots are tough. Mm-hmm. But here's the advantage is that you're reading original writing. You're able to demonstrate, I mean, I'm talking you, me, mm-hmm. me and the executive producer, you're also able to determine, does the person know television? Mm-hmm. Um, are you writing with act breaks or out act, without act breaks is something uh, that the writer has to decide. I would say that that more versatility is demonstrated by writing to act breaks because I, I think that uh, I agree. Uh, it shows that you're thinking about these things. And certainly if you can write with act breaks, you can write without them. But I'm not sure the reverse is as true. Um, but, you know, the general advice, and I'm sure you give your your uh, mentees this this advice is that you know you don't start you don't stop with one arrow in your quiver you want as many arrows in your quiver as you can get and uh, but of an original piece uh, or more I mean a, a, a movie uh, isn't for television writing I don't think is is quite as effective because it, it yes it'll show your original voice and if it's a look if it's a good piece of writing I don't care you could write it on the back of an envelope and it can get you hired um, but uh, but, but asking, the original pilot is more the preference for a showrunner reading to staff. But there's a pragmatic dimension yeah. to it because yeah. it's shorter, yeah. and 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 it also shows familiarity with television. And what about one X? Um, you know, it depends. It again, I hired uh, on my show T.D. Mitchell. I hired mm-hmm. her on the basis of a couple full-length plays that she had written. Yeah, uh, and I would read a one X. I love playwrights. It, you know, yeah, it, that's great. You know, I I think that those barriers. Um, and they used to exist quite rigidly. I, I think barriers are pretty much fallen down, and it's up. You know, I don't. I don't think there's any. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any taboo anymore. It's just a question of what you're looking for. Um, and original. You know, what I look for in writing is uh, sensitivity, intelligence. You know, an original sensibility of some sort. Um, I certainly think that no matter what you write, that I don't want to know on page one what I'm going to find on page 31 or page 51. And you'd be surprised how many spec so you scripts like you read. Anticipation, expectation, surprise. Uh, uh, yep. that, that's a good way. You, you've thought yep. about this before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, definitely I don't want to know how the story ends be, well, as soon as it begins. And so I like to be surprised. I like to, you know, you ask, I like, um, I like s- s- stories that set up questions and, well, how's that going to play out? You know, and, you know, it doesn't, when I've taught writing, I, I said, you know, if, if, the reader wants to turn the page. You don't need to learn anything from this class because you're doing everything right. It's all about mm-hmm. wanting to turn the page. And uh, it's when you don't want to turn the page, that's when you start to learn about, okay, well, why not? What's the problem here? See, it's interesting you touch on that because I recognize in reading a gazillion scripts and teaching writing is that questions is a huge part. Like I think 
after working in TV for as long as I have for close to 18 years now, it it is I, I, I started seeing structure as start with a powerful dilemma, stem it into a clear goal, and then every other act break connects back to that goal. And it is, it is a very interesting thing because I also started going, okay, in creating a powerful dilemma, you're also creating powerful questions. What's going to happen? Is so-and-so going to find this? What's going to happen to this? And if you end your act breaks where the powerful questions are being asked, you keep your audience coming back. So I think questions are a huge thing. Right. I think, you know? And I think something from the inside that I've always uh, wanted to emphasize to people, especially writing for the first time, is that writing – uh, ideally, I think it's it, it's a messy process. It's mm-hmm. not it's not something clean. One of yes. my problems with uh, I read a book, a very popular book on writing, one of the most popular by a guy who's who's made a career out of it, and it paralyzed me for a week. And I was I was making I'd make, been making my living as a as a professional writer for two years. All I'll say is that it, it's it's a writer who emphasizes things like midpoints. And right. um, and right. the thing is, I thought, oh my god, where's my midpoint? Um, and right. you know, and I've been being yeah. like I said, I've been making my living at this. The because the key to me, and I don't mean to denigrate any particular writer, of it's course. just that the key to me is um, that. Uh, it's it's not a men you know it, it's not a menu where you lay out these these menu items and then you just heat and serve you know you just don't go a b c d and e um you're it's a push pull process you're wrestling with this stuff um and by the time you get it done you should be saying okay yeah now that i've done this it 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 does have for example what you were talking about these anticipatory points and it raises these questions but where you get into a story and how you shape it and where you go I mean, it's often like dropping behind enemy lines and fighting your way back to safety. I mean, it's like, okay, this is where this is an interesting idea, but mm-hmm. now I'm in trouble, and yeah. and uh, um, and you've got to keep surprising yourself and and uh, uh, and recognizing when to go back and revise and 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 when you know this is a better idea and. Uh, it I'm could big, go on and on. The development process is a constant process. Yeah, and depending on on what show you write for, and and should you have the good you know the the good fortune to work on a, on a series, there are teaching hospitals and there are private hospitals, and hopefully when you're new in the business, you want to be in a teaching hospital with somebody who who uh, uh, is willing to to spend time with you and and help you go over stuff. But sometimes you're not, and right. um, and outlines. Yeah, you know, I'm a big believer in outlines, but I'm also a big believer that the outline is not the script, and mm-hmm. that there has to be some discovery. Uh, what I like to say is the outline is the map; it's not the journey. Right. And sometimes maps are wrong. Right. You know, sometimes you know highways have been built that aren't on the uh, map yes. yet, or you find but you wow, have to do it to learn it. Yeah, it's just yeah. a couple inches here on the map, but. Wow, it's very tall, or there's yeah. water here. You know, you it doesn't you, you, work you, in the way maybe that you thought it would. Right, yeah. and so you, when you're writing, you've got to say, "Well, it's more interesting over mm-hmm. here. I think I'm going to go here." But then you got to get back to eventually where you're going. And uh, I'm also a big believer. I, I like using the Yiddish proverb that if you don't know where you're going, every road will take you there. Ah, you do, that's great. You do need to have a sense of where you're going, but but how you get there can change. Yes. No, I think that's great. Now, okay, with your show running, what prompted you to start the showrunners program at the WGA, which I hear absolutely phenomenal things about from everybody who goes through it? What what prompted that idea? That's a good question. I I, I think it began as a uh, as a possibility when John Worth got a few of us together to write this uh, this booklet that you mentioned earlier, writing for episodic television. Is that available to people? Yes, it is. It's free. It's available online. And it's available as a booklet. It's in print. At and the online, Club. it's under what? What is the name? Um, it's called Writing for Episodic Television. Okay. And uh, good for it's, people it's, to know. It's written. It's excellent. It, I've read it by it's by excellent. chapter. You yeah. know about freelancing and then being a staff writer, story mm-hmm. editor, and so forth. And it tries to. Uh, from an inside perspective with a good sense of humor and also some sense of reality, talk about what it's like to really work in the business. It was pitched to it, – it is it is written for WGA members, but I think it has a lot of – you know, I think I think people who are not yet in the guild will find a lot there that they can chew on. But um, Or maybe someday you'll turn it into a book that is published. Yeah, and... well, we <laughs> – <laughs> that would be – that'd be yeah. It, yes. uh, you know, when, I, when I started, I really don't want to make any money anymore. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, that's true. <laughs> but uh, – uh, that that showed that that uh, and that was a really worthwhile experience, and I give John a lot of credit for for honchoing that. And then, 
for me, I was getting to a point in my career where I was looking at what was happening to the business, and both John Worth and I had the chance to learn from Michael Gleason. Um, we were both on Remington Steel. It's not coincidental that we both found ourselves wanting to give back because Michael was a very generous guy. I uh, hear that. Does. And, yeah. um, and a lot of what I tell people today I learned from him. And uh, and I think when you've had an experience like that, you want to give back. But also, as uh, one of the impulses I had is, is I looked at – uh, what was going on with the business and that the opportunity to apprentice in this way was, was the, the opportunities were getting fewer, shows were getting yanked earlier, and, and, and everything was uh, – there's a lot more opportunity for writers. But, uh, you know, and I'm sure you know plenty of people that young writers who've written a good feature all of a sudden are running TV shows and, and they could, you know, they give you enough rope to hang yourself with very quickly now. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, uh, that that was one thing as I looked at what was happening in the business and thought that the Guild – I look at other guilds and other professions, other you know whether it's medicine or law, you know something. And ongoing education is a part of it. The DGA does a very good job with ongoing education. I thought, well, we don't do that so well, and we we didn't have very much that was going on. And so I thought that was one thing the guild should do. Also, personally, I think that when you've had a good, enough experience to um, uh, to have a, a, when you've had something of a career, um, and one of the things I like about teaching is it reminds you that you actually do know something. I mean, mm-hmm. there's times that uh, there's times that you wonder about it, but you get in front of people who, who are asking questions. You say, oh, yeah, I guess I didn't know that when I was at your point either. Um, but you get to a point where you're saying, well, what's going to happen uh, when I leave town? Because I think all of us feel like you leave these footprints in the mm-hmm. sand, and then as soon as the I first agree. big wave comes, it's gone. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, how, that would be a shame you know, with all these people working in television. And television, unlike movies, uh, there really is a codified, not codified, but there there is a body of collective wisdom that should be shared. There are things you don't have to invent the wheel every time, and there are a lot of very smart people and talented people who've been down this road before. And how do you access that collective experience and uh, and knowledge? Um, and so it seemed uh, I was inspired by the writers, the Directors Guild, uh, their their directors program, you know, for training ads. Uh, this is a director program. I said, well. That's a that's a craft that they can definitely teach with definite goals. What could we do here? Um, I pitched it to John Wells. He thought it was a good idea and agreed to uh, take it forward with me. Uh, the head of the guild at the time, John McClain, was a big believer in it. Now, he had a political motive in addition to everything else. He thought that with everything that was going on with TV, there was a concern that writers might lose their position as, as – um, as writer producers, that as shows got more expensive and more got on the line, and fear intensified in this town, that at some point they might take uh, the shows away from us because writer producers were not always the, the the norm. I mean, for many years, writers did not have that power in television, right. um, and it really is something that became more evident in the '70s and '80s. MTM Studios was a big player in this when Bochco and Burroughs and a lot of other people, uh, you know, began to make their mark in. Uh, in TV, and, and suddenly the power really began to to, to solidify with the with the writer producer. So he was a big fan of it, and then the studios uh, were also big fans of it, and the networks because they thought if we can do things more efficiently, then we'll save money and we'll keep shows on the air, and everybody will be happy. Um, so those were that was kind of the mix of factors that went into it. And I mean, because if you look at it's interesting, and in, in working. You know, I I think I ended up helping staff over 15 shows and working with every different type of showrunner you can imagine. And either a person managed well but maybe didn't write as well or they wrote really well but maybe didn't manage as well. So they knew how to form their team around them because it was really understanding what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses and, and how do you surround yourself with a team that fills in the, the spaces. And so I, I think – when how many years has it been going this, this on? This is our sixth year now. Yeah, when I uh, and Carol Kirshner, I'm certainly very um, close with because I was a mentor in the CBS program before becoming a writing instructor for NBC. And when I look at the program, and I think that was brilliant because a lot of people get thrown in earlier in my career, got thrown into these massive jobs, and it's massive. I mean, you have the weight of the world on your shoulders. It's like you're working 24-7, many of them, and you're responsible for everything. And yeah, so, there's, there's no business in the world yeah. where uh, you suddenly go from being a schmuck with a laptop one day to being in charge of essentially a multi-million dollar enterprise the mm-hmm. next day, because that, from a corporate point of view, that's what it is. Yeah. And as John Wells likes to point out, who's very savvy about these things, you know, it's like they're 
they're the bank and they're lending you money and they want return on their investment. Right. And you need to know yeah, that. Yeah, that's you know? true. And uh, that's true. I like it. I like that he looks at it like that. And you know, that's what we tell them. And, yeah. and, and the thing is, if you're not up to that, then you're not going to succeed. And yeah. so there are a lot of talented writers who, if they just had a little bit of help, you uh, give them the tools. Right. And yeah. that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's a six week program. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a selective program. We keep it small as a master class deliberately to, uh, to make the interaction as, as uh, useful as it can be. So you have to be a writer-producer in television or have a pilot to be eligible for the program. You have to be nominated by either a studio or network exec or a showrunner. Once you're nominated, you have to go through a little bit of an essay process, which just essentially tell us about yourself. Then we take a look at that. Um, we got this year over 80 applicants for 20 slots. and. Right. Uh, and uh, then we, we interview about half. And like I tell everybody, we're looking for reasons to accept people, not reject people. We're looking for people who we think are in the, in the best position to utilize this knowledge tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we try to get a good mix uh, across all sorts of uh, indices. And, uh, um, and then we, we meet for six weeks uh, from 9 o'clock until 4 o'clock, like six consecutive Saturdays. And, it's, it's, and we run through 50, 60 guests, a lot of showrunners. But also actors, directors, producers, teamsters, executives. You you participated as an executive, and yeah, uh, I loved it. And and so it's it's uh, and and the and the approach, as you said, it's tools. There you can't quantify this business beyond a a very. I mean, there are a couple things you can look at in terms of production documents and stuff. There's some quantifiable top-down knowledge, but most of it is more um, uh, approaches, tools, psychology. management skills. I mean, essentially, after the first season, the curriculum stayed roughly the same, but I reorganized it entirely between the first uh, iteration and the second. And and now the principal is going from writer to manager. And that's the... Uh, uh, that's the spine of it. And then each week is divided by – the first week is just what that is. What does it mean to go from being a writer to a manager? And then each week is divided into topics like managing writers in the writing process, managing directors, managing actors, managing executive relationships, managing post-production. Um, and, that's fantastic. Uh, and, and that seems to have worked as an effective organizing principle. How high up does someone need to be to be ready like, do they need to be at, like, supervising producer and have served on staffs from the staff level? We have all what, sorts of people yeah, represented. I mean, Matt different. Nix kind of broke the mold for me mm-hmm. the second year we did the program because I thought it would be uh, just for people like me. You know, right, I thought it would right. be for people who had put in six, eight years and then were ready to take on their first show. That's what happened to me. I'd, I'd been in the business for a while, and after uh, early edition, I mean, after uh, Northern Exposure, uh, I got an offer from David Kelly to run the fourth season of, uh, of Picket Fences. And... Um, that's how I got my start executive producing. But uh, yeah, we're going to we, go into all your shows next. But yeah. but but with Matt Nix, here was this guy who had zero TV experience. Mm-hmm. He had some movie experience, but he had zero TV experience. But we were told he had this hot pilot at USA called uh, Burn Notice, and I we interviewed him. Carol and I interviewed him. Carol is our executive director of the program, and she's fantastic. And um, and we looked at each other after we'd interviewed him, and I said, God, this guy's so bright, and he's so hungry for this information, you know, because he gets it that if he doesn't have this information, he could fail. And uh, um, I said, we got to let him in. And I, and I started calling that the Matt Nix chair every year. We would look right. for somebody like Matt who came with oh, no I think experience. That's great. And I, I will say now there's at least two or three people occupying that chair because right. the business continues to go in that direction. It and does. Matt, Matt, you know, who's, I, I think he would have made it without the program. He's so bright and talented. But, um, but the fact is he, he credits the program with helping him get through his first oh, year of burn great. notice. And he comes back and instructs every year now. Oh, too. that's fantastic. So it's, it's See? always. See? You know, See what you're building? Well, it's, that's amazing. It, it's fun to be part that's of it. That's a gift. No, it's a gift to the community. I think that's fantastic. I mean, looking at your list of shows is just unbelievable. I mean, every I've, I've watched every single one of them. That's why I've been such a huge fan for so many years. Checks in the mail. <laughs> I love I love your body of work. So jumping into this, let's start with the most recent, the more recent ones: Alias, Injustice, Line of Fire, Early Edition. What did you learn from those experiences that you? carry with you today? Well, that's a good question. Um, for context, I should my career kind of divides into two halves because uh, I took a little break. Uh, Martha and I were building a house after early edition um, or maybe it was right before. You know, it was, it was during that period of time. But for the first part of my career, 
what I realized only after it was over is that I had an extraordinary opportunity to work on shows with longevity. I joined Remington Steel in its second season, and I stayed with it through three three seasons. I, I got onto Hill Street in its last season, but it had been around for seven years. I mean, it was the seventh season. So um, I, I then did development for four years back when development actually meant something. Uh, wrote a number of pilots. Really? The, I yeah, didn't know that. That's yeah, great. Yeah, it was... Uh, um, yeah, Scott Seeger was very good to me, and right. Barbara Corday, and I wrote a lot of pilots, and uh, three of them got made, but none of them made the schedule, right. which in retrospect was probably a good thing. I'm not <laughs> sure. I'm not sure I was ready for that, but uh, um, there was no show or training program at that point. There you go. Um, but uh, then, then I got on the, on the Northern Exposure. I got on that in episode 16 and stayed with it to episode 112. Oh my gosh! Uh, so uh, that's amazing. Yeah, and then uh, took. Uh, Went from that to Picket Fences, which was in its uh, took over as executive producer in its fourth season. Um, then got an offer to work on Early Edition as a consultant in the first season, uh, and uh, and then was elevated to showrunner in the second season, and that ran for four seasons. Um, then I took a break, and it was at that point. <clears throat> That that my career changed because I I didn't realize how blessed I was because even though I wasn't on those shows for their entirety, um, there's a real value to being part of a show that's been around for a while and there's a real value. I have friends by contrast. I had one pair of friends who uh, writers who for like worked almost in the business as long as I had and and it was only after like twelve to fifteen years they said for the first time in our careers we're going back to the same office this year. Uh, whereas my experience had been just the opposite. I'd always gone back to the same office unless the show went off the air because it was its last season. But even then, because it had been on the air for a while, there's a certain uh, comfort level. There's a certain anxiety that's removed from the experience, which if you're on a show from the beginning, you know that the, a pilot is its own certain brand of hysteria. And then the first six episodes are under a particular microscope and uh, and a pressure cooker. And uh, it's a very different experience. Um so to start with with alias, um, I had uh, uh, what what happened was um, trying to back up. I after uh, after we after early edition, and I took this this time uh, off. I wanted to get in. I thought well, it's time to do some cable. So um, I took a look at the projects that were out there. And Scott Rosenberg had written this wonderful pilot called Going to California. Scott's a brilliant writer. And um, he had based it on an autobiographical novel of his that was not published. Uh, and it was a great Route 66 for, like, the MTV generation. That's the shorthand of it. And Showtime was very much behind it. And we filmed it entirely on practical locations. Started in Wilmington, North Carolina, but then would move every three episodes somewhere around the country as we followed these two guys trying to find a friend of theirs. It was a wonderful show, and uh, we made exactly the show we wanted to. Newsday said this should do for uh, Showtime what uh, The Sopranos did for HBO, and we were off the air after one season. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and And that was the first time I thought, well, oh, I guess this is the other part of the iceberg. Uh, and, yeah. And, and, uh, You've and, known security for so long. Right. Uh, and, yeah. And then – and then uh, after that, I worked on Mr. Sterling, a friend of mine, Lawrence O'Donnell. Uh-huh, uh, we'd gone to college together. That was his show. Uh, that was short-lived. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, and then Rod Lurie, uh, who I'd met during that period of time, had this wonderful FBI show, Line of Fire. And we poured our heart and soul into that. And, you know, you could, there, there's, you know, victory as a thousand fathers and, and, and failures and orphan, obviously. But there's for every I failure. Like I mean, there, there, there's so many ways to die in this business, so many ways to fail. And when I think about Line of Fire, which I thought was a terrific show, they premiered us because NYPD Blue suddenly had to go out of production because I think Dennis Franz hurt his back. So suddenly we're pre- premiering in the first or second week of December. Not exactly, as you know, the best time to premiere. No. So I, I think that the odds were against us from the beginning. But the reason I bring that up is because uh, that brought me to the attention of ABC, and that's when they asked me. I knew they would ask me to jump on a show because at that point in my career, um, unlike the first stage of development, the first stage of development, I was there because they were hoping that I would be the goose that would lay the golden egg, and 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 so they were. And also, as you know, Jen, there was much more money floating. Yeah, around. there was you, overall you, deals yeah. left and right, and it yeah. wasn't just that they were paying you to produce; they were also paying to take you off the market so nobody else could have the, whatever yeah. golden eggs you're you may or may not be You're getting a million dollars for one script, and that script doesn't right. go. Right. And you, yeah. But at least they could say, well, at least he wasn't yep. writing it for Fox or, right. or for Paramount you're or whatever right. it was. Those days are long gone. But anyway. Uh, at this point in my career, I had done several shows as a showrunner, and I'd come in in the position of helping people with shows. And so 
Um, they signed me up to an overall deal, but I knew that the deal was going to be okay. I'm, they're not just going to put me in an office and let me, uh, you know. They're re- going to make you work. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a damn, you know. But anyway, <laughs> what happened was uh, um, uh, my wife and I, uh, our anniversaries in May, we were in Rome. I get a phone call in the middle of the night from J.J. Abrams saying, hey, how would you like to come on to Alias? Uh, it was going into its fourth right. season. And, um, and you know he said i think it needs a little bit of a of a reboot and uh, cuz that was the third season was the one where 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 Jennifer Garner wakes up and it turns out that she's like been in a coma for two two you know the last yeah. two years are are are, are uh, something that she can't yeah, account I for and so um I thought, well, you know, jump before you're pushed. I thought this would be a great opportunity. How often do you get to be a hero to your kids? Alias was my younger son's favorite show. And uh, to work with a talent like J.J. was great. And then an additional thing was that, and, of course, the whole Alias thing. I mean, that was a great cast. Jennifer Garner is a Mm -hmm. genuine star, and everybody else was terrific to work with, too. Um, Victor Garber and Ron Rifkin. I mean, just a great bunch of people. Um, But... uh, uh, I had a point here, um, <laughs> you know, but the, the alias staff. Let's see. Oh, were, yes, the alias yeah. staff. It was just. Yeah. It, I also at that point, I I had worked with three people that were on the staff, and so you know, Josh and Andre, among others, and uh, uh, I had the great pleasure of meeting them a while ago on early edition and hiring them on early edition, and then we worked on going to California together, and here oh, they were great. on staff at Alias and Jeff Pinkner as well, who I'd yeah. hired on, on early edition, and I knew a couple other people. Uh, as well from uh, trying to hire them in the past. And so um, I thought, well, this will be interesting. And they didn't want to hire promote from within that year because uh, I think it was just that it it had been such a hothouse and it's easier sometimes to go to the outside. And so I was really being brought in to help kind of reorganize and uh, reboot the show. And it was a hard year. Um, But like I said, to uh, work with that cast and that crew and to work with that show and to to be, uh, you know, around J.J. um, was, uh, you know, that was terrific. And uh, but it was not I I won't say it was the easiest year or most fun year. I mean, the most fun year. I'm going to jump around on your questions here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. But probably the most fun remains my first job. I mean, I was young. I had just met my wife. Isn't that interesting? And and then John Worth and Brad Kern, who remain good friends of mine. Yeah, Brad's great. You know, we, we all met during that. Period, I loved that show intensely. Working with Pierce and Stephanie and and Doris Roberts, um, and I remember feeling quite vividly. And I remember saying this to John Worth. I said, "You know, I, I know this show will end someday, but I just feel it will never end. I just feel like this is going to go on forever. We will always be here at MTM. And by the way, you know, MTM at that point, uh, Hill Street was being produced. Um, Down below us, the Newhart Show was being produced. The Mary Tyler Moore Show was being produced, and." Uh, I think it was still maybe yeah and 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 St. Elsewhere was being produced right. and so like you walked out the door and you felt like you were you know part of a very privileged experience and MTM was a great lot had a oh, very warm feel and I really had that feeling like how could it get better than this this will never end and you know since then I mean it was not a show that would win Emmys or Golden Globes or anything like that but boy did we have fun and, uh, but it's nice to look back and reflect on that. That's wonderful. Yeah. And now, I mean, for you to take that body of incredible experience and be teaching now at USC and Harvard and UCLA Extension, what has that experience been like? Well, I, I love doing that. I, yeah. uh, um, Like I said before, it kind of reminds you that you do know something. But it also, you're always learning something in, in – uh, in the business as well. So, I mean, and, and it's very stimulating to uh, come into contact with fresh talent and, um, uh, and hear the kind of questions that they have as, as they're coming up. Each of those experiences is different. Um, UCLA Extension, which was my first teaching experience, UCLA does a great job of training their teachers. They offer voluntarily. They often, I think they called it Seven Steps to Great Teaching, and it was a full-day program uh, that that was so good I went through it a second time when I taught a second year there that just gives you, in one very concentrated experience, the tools that you need to organize and run a course. Um, a very fundamental stuff, but very it doesn't get it's it's not terribly complicated. It's mm-hmm. just that you have to think these things through, and they really organize the material as well and, and present it well. So, and that was teaching uh, 
adults. You know, mm-hmm. that's people that are self-selective group, and that has its own rewards and challenges. Um, SC was an experience to see. It was an opportunity to see what it's like to really teach at a top-notch graduate school that really is dedicated to getting people into the business. And what I found for me, and I, I think they do a great job, and I and I certainly don't rule out going back there, but. Um, for me, it wasn't quite the um, the break from the business I wanted. I mean, as I as I told people, okay, uh, you know, when I run a writing staff, there are six, eight people that work for me. Um, uh, the shows get produced and they pay me a lot of money. I said, when I was teaching at SC, I've got a dozen grad students. They don't have to listen to me, and they, the shows don't get made, and they pay you nothing, you know. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and not really, but but, but 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 you know. But I said, what's wrong with this yeah, picture? Yeah. Um, but but I had great class, and I'm still in touch with a number of those students, and a couple of them I've helped uh, to the degree that I could get get a foothold yeah, in business. Yeah, and, and then so the opportunity at Harvard came up because I was talking to the head of the Office for the Arts there, which was actually created, I hesitate to say, when I was an undergraduate. And um, uh, they're on their second, uh, only their second head of that uh, of that office. And uh, he's a great guy. And uh, I was telling him about my USC experience, and I said it just wasn't enough of a change for me. And he said, well, what do you want to teach? And, and uh, he said, why don't you teach here? And I said, teach what? And he said, well, make something up. So um, – what happened was I, I a few weeks later I woke up with the title of a course in my mind called Three Scripts: The Craft of Storytelling on Stage, Television, and Screen. And I said, Well, I don't know what that is, but I'd like to teach it and uh, I'd like to take it. And so uh, it was ended up being a comparative study yeah. uh, seminar about what's common and what's distinctive to writing for theater, writing for movies, and writing for television. And uh, that was. I love that you touched on that because it's interesting. When I wrote my book, I. I wrote it from a place of what would I want to read. And so how you said, well, this is, I'd love to take that. Right. I love that. That's great because I think that's where we, as as creative people, I think it's like you look at and you go, okay, what would I love to learn? And what would I love to look at? And what would interest me? And I think that's such a great way to go into your art, you know? It is. So no, how has that class been? That was great. I mean, I, I taught it once. It was a semester course, and uh, was it what you thought it would be? Well, it, it, for one thing, I, I I thought I would hold it for twelve people, and I had eighty people apply, and I <sighs> and so I made I made a was a good title. <laughs> I, I made a critical mistake, which is I took about twenty twenty five, right. and uh, but but and and of course, and the, then you're reading all their work. That's wow. the hardest part. I was just going to say, you know, it's, yeah. it's the grading that makes yeah. life difficult. But yeah. but I had a wonderful TA who's a playwright, and she was a big help. And uh, Rebecca McGore, I hope we hear more from her. Oh, a great. Talented actress and writer. And uh, one of my students, uh, Jason Lazarczyk, has been my assistant for the last two years. Yeah, um, Jason's great. I met and him. And he's yeah. a very talented director great. and writer, although he won't let me read anything of his yet, which I'm grateful for. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, um, so that was terrific. And uh, I'd look forward to teaching that course again because there's nothing that's as hard as creating a, you know, a syllabus and a lesson plan for the first time. And so to get any... His psychic money out of it. I need to teach it again, and I think I could do a better job. But it was uh, – uh, I've got some companion courses in mind that I'd like to do. And uh, you So know, the it, teaching is something that you're going to continue on because yeah. you – that's – I think that is I, – I think we're put on this planet to learn skills, learn from our mistakes, learn from our accomplishments, and then pass our story forward. So – I, I think that's I think everybody's lucky who gets to learn from you. So well, I think that I, I think that's fantastic. Like I Oscar do. Wilde said, experience is the name we give to our mistakes. So yes, isn't I, that I have a lot the of truth? Ex- I have a lot of experience to share. Yeah, oh we all do. Trust <laughs> me, we all do. Um okay, for our last question, if you were starting your writing career today, what would how would you do it differently? Well, I couldn't do it the way I did it before because that world doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, I mean, really, I'm. I think what I'm asking underneath that is is for a writer who is starting their career today. What would be your your advice? Well, I, I, as I said earlier, the, the the great thing about writing compared to other crafts that are involved in this business is that you can always be doing it. So, write uh, as as much as you can. Write as well as you can. Read uh, a lot. Um, learn to listen very selectively to other people. Learn to, uh, I mean, it's what Hemingway said is that the, the best uh, tool that a writer can have is a built-in ironclad shit detector. I don't know if I can say that on. You uh, can say that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, you need to be your hardest reader. You need to find a couple friends that you trust who are not going to tell you that your work is great because you wrote it. Um, but, but just keep writing 
keep i think especially in today's environment it's important to to watch i mean one to watch as much as you can there's so many different opportunities and know what it is you want to go after um and clear goal yeah, good, and, yeah. And, and you know you have to steer your own boat and mm-hmm. it can be very distracting uh when you think about other people um one thing i tell people is that uh, try to avoid the fastest gun syndrome. You know, the old thing about the Western, that you're the fastest gun and you're drawing on everybody until one day somebody who's a little faster than you comes in and guns you down. You're never going to be the youngest, Good most point. successful person in Hollywood. And if that's your standard for happiness, uh, you're going to be doomed to a life of disappointment. So you need to know why you're here. Have your feet on the ground. Remember that it is about the, uh, the opportunity to write and write well. And you need to do what you can to feed that. And that's not uh, a question of going to the right parties and knowing the right agents. It it uh, It's not quite as simple as build a better mousetrap and they'll come to your door, but it does come down to the fact that if you don't have the material, if it's not the writing, and if the writing isn't what really makes you uh, most passionate and excited, then maybe you should do something else because it's, it's too, it's, it is too hard and too competitive if it's, that's not the goal. But if that is the goal, then that's what you need to keep feeding. And um, from a practical point of view, just Keep your head about you. See where the trends are. See where it is you want to go. But go go for what excites you the most. And when in terms of the material you write, write the material you love. And if you're going to pick a spec show to do, pick one that you love. And because uh, you're going to have to, that's the one you're going to rewrite the most. That's the one you're going to put the most into. And uh, uh, and 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 don't look back. Yeah. Great advice. My gosh, my audience is very lucky. I'm very excited for all of you to. Hear this tremendous interview with Jeff Melvoin and this incredible advice for you and your careers. So thank you so much for joining me, Jeff. This has been incredible. Well, it's always a pleasure under any circumstance to be with you, Jennifer. Oh, thank you, Jeff. I appreciate that. We are out. This is StoryWise Podcast, and we are here again with Jeff Melvoin. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. StoryWise is produced by Joel Metzger and Hot House Bruiser Productions.